Greetings, fiends, and glad tidings. In keeping with a grand holiday tradition that has sadly gone out of style in recent years, we want to gather you all around the fire for a good scare. Tonight, we live in our minds for a little while, a place where everything is safe, everyone is healthy, and our loved ones are just a glimmer away. Close your eyes now and picture this. We are in a warm and cozy home, all of us together. The mantles are decked with evergreen boughs and holly. The air smells of cinnamon, oranges, wood fire, and pine. The hum of carols being played on an upright piano can be heard throughout the halls. The light is warm and old. It is candlelight and fires, shaded bulbs and twinkling ornaments. You have a warm cup of cider or hot chocolate in your hands, and it contrasts deliciously with the snow you see falling from your vantage point near a frosted window. There have been songs and a delicious meal. There were sweets and laughter and snowball fights and hugs. And now it is time to settle round the fire. Pick a spot. Everywhere is comfortable. There are soft chairs and a sofa, pillows and blankets heaped on the floor. Everyone pile in close enough to grab an arm if they need to and prepare to be taken in by your favorite ghost stories. Are you ready? Blanket around your shoulders? Breath baited? Wonderful. Here we go. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. in the opening this time. No, that was nice. I'm all cozy. We all feel good now. (laughs) Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hello there, fiends, and welcome to our imaginary fireside. This week is all about the atmosphere, and it's our Christmas gift to you. So I'll keep the business incredibly brief and to the point because I hate to ruin a mood. Cool. If you guys have appreciated We Would Be Dead this year and want to give us a little holiday pick-me-up, please stop on by to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a moment, but it means the world to us. And if you're really feeling generous and would like to see We Would Be Dead grow in the new year, head on over to Patreon and leave us a little monthly donation. In return, you'll get discounts on our merchandise, access to our monthly live campfire story events, our patrons-only monthly podcast, 30-minute horror movies, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and much more. And finally, if you want to show us some love but find that all that is overwhelming, you can simply share anything we post. Sharing is caring, your friends could become fiends, and then we can all have fun like this together. Also, don't forget to grab some We Would Be Dead holiday merch before the holidays are over and it crawls back into its magical cave until next year. I think that's it. Leslie, do you have anything to add? No, not this week. No, maybe next week? Maybe. One week you're going to have something, and it's going to be like a revelation. It's going to be like the first half hour of the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be really long, and it's super important, and we're all going to be like, whoa. She waited for a good one. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then, if there's nothing else, on with the show. This week we're reading our favorite Victorian Christmas ghost stories for you. We have carefully selected two traditional tales to chill your spine like the winter wind. 
And since you have all been so kind and supportive when it comes to my creative writing, I have written an original ghost story for you all to close things out. I'm pretty excited. It was fun. It was a fun project. I hope to do more fiction writing in one way or another in the coming year. So if that's something you like, stay tuned. I don't know how, what we're going to do with it, but I'm going to do it. (laughs) Wonderful. Why not? (laughs) I'm going to start us off with a story called The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood, which is like such a good old timey name. That's good. Isn't it? All right, uh, and this is going to go a little bit differently. We're trying to not really interrupt each other as we go. I mean, if our reactions are undeniable, they're just going to happen because we are both sitting here together. But um, we're going to try and tell the stories for you in full, and then we'll talk a little bit about it before we move on to the next one. So get cozy. Cozed up. Love it. Here we go. When the words not guilty sounded through the crowded courtroom that dark December afternoon, Arthur Wilbraham, the great criminal KC and leader for the triumphant defense, was represented by his junior. But Johnson, his private secretary, carried the verdict across to his chambers like lightning. It is what we expected, I think, said the barrister without emotion. And personally, I am glad the case is over. There was no particular sign of pleasure that his defense of John Turk, the murderer, on a plea of insanity, had been successful. For no doubt he felt, as everybody who watched the case felt, that no man had ever better deserved the gallows. I am glad too, said Johnson. He sat in the court for ten days watching the face of the man who had carried out with callous detail one of the most brutal and cold-blooded murders of recent years. The counsel glanced up at his secretary. They were more than employer and employed. For family and other reasons, they were friends. I remember, yes, he said with a kind smile. And you want to get away for Christmas. You're going to skate and ski in the Alps, aren't you? If I was your age, I'd come with you. Johnson laughed shortly. He was a young man of 26 with a delicate face like a girl's. I can catch the morning boat now, he said, but that's not the reason I'm glad the trial is over. I'm glad it's over because I've seen the last of that man's dreadful face. It positively haunted me. That white skin with the black hair brushed low over the forehead is a thing I shall never forget. And the description of the way the dismembered body was crammed and packed with lime into that... Don't dwell on it, my dear fellow, interrupted the other, looking at him curiously out of his keen eyes. Don't think about it. Such pictures have a trick of coming back when one least wants to get them. He paused a moment. Now go, he added presently, and enjoy your holiday. I shall want all your energy for my parliamentary work when you get back. And don't break your neck skiing. Johnson shook hands and took his leave. At the door, he turned suddenly. I knew there was something I wanted to ask you, he said. Would you mind lending me one of your kit bags? It's too late to get one tonight, and I leave in the morning before the shops are open. Of course, I'll send Henry over with it to your rooms. You shall have it the moment I get home. I promise to take great care of it, said Johnson gratefully, delighted to think that within thirty hours he would be nearing the brilliant sunshine of the high Alps in winter. The thought of that criminal court was like an evil dream in his mind. He dined at his club and went on to Bloomsbury where he occupied the top floor in one of those old gaunt houses in which the rooms are large and lofty. The floor below his own was vacant and unfurnished, and below that were other lodgers whom he did not know. It was cheerless, and he looked forward heartily to a change. The night was even more cheerless. It was miserable, and few people were about. 
A cold, sleety rain was driving down the streets before the keenest east wind he had ever felt. It howled dismally among the big, gloomy houses of the great squares, and when he reached his rooms, he heard it whistling and shouting over the world of black roofs beyond his windows. In the hall, he met his landlady, shading a candle from the drafts with her thin hand. This come by a man from Mr. Wilbram, sir, she pointed to what was evidently the kit bag, and Johnson thanked her and took it upstairs with him. I shall be going abroad in the morning for ten days, Mrs. Monks, he said. I'll leave an address for letters. And I hope you'll have a Merry Christmas, sir, she said, in a raucous, wheezy voice that suggested spirits. And better weather than this, I hope so, too, replied her lodger, shuddering a little as the wind went roaring down the street outside. When he got upstairs, he heard the sleet following against the window panes. He put a kettle on to make a cup of hot coffee, and then set about putting a few things in order for his absence. And now I must pack, such as packing is. He laughed to himself and set about his work at once. He liked the packing, for it brought the snow mountains so vividly before him, and made him forget the unpleasant scenes of the past ten days. Besides, it was not elaborate in nature. His friend had lent him the very thing, a stout canvas kit bag, sack-shaped, with holes round the neck for brass bar shape, and padlock. It was a bit shapeless, true, and not much to look at, but its capacity was unlimited, and there was no need to pack carefully. He shoved in his waterproof coat, his fur cap, gloves, his skates and climbing boots, his sweaters, snow boots, and ear caps, and then on the top of these he piled his woodland shirts and underwear, his thick socks, putties, and knickerbockers. The dress suit came in next, in case the hotel people dressed for dinner, and then, thinking of the best way to pack his white shirts, he paused a moment to reflect. That's the worst of these kit bags, he mused vaguely, standing in the center of the sitting room where he had come to fetch something. It was after ten o'clock, and a furious gust of wind rattled the windows as though to hurry him up, and he thought with pity of the poor Londoners whose Christmas would be spent in such a climate, while he was skimming over snowy slopes in bright sunshine and dancing in the evening with rosy-cheeked girls. Ah, that reminded him. He must put in his dancing pumps and evening socks. He crossed over from his sitting room to the cupboard on the landing where he kept his linen, and as he did so, he heard someone coming softly up the stairs. He stood still a moment on the landing to listen. It was Mrs. Monk's step, he thought. She must be coming up with the last post. But then the steps ceased suddenly, and he heard no more. They were at least two flights down, and he came to the conclusion that they were too heavy to be those of his bilibus landlady. No doubt they belonged to a late lodger who had mistaken his floor. He went to his bedroom and packed his pumps and dress shirts as best as he could. The kit bag by this time was two-thirds full and stood upright on its own base like a sack of flour. For the first time, he noticed that it was old and dirty. The canvas faded and worn, and that it had obviously been subjected to rather rough treatment. It was not a very nice bag to have sent him, certainly not a new one or one that his chief valued. He gave the matter a passing thought and went on with his packing. Once or twice, however, he caught himself wondering who could have been wandering down below for Mrs. Monks had not come up with letters, and the floor was empty and unfurnished. From time to time, moreover, he was almost certain he heard a soft tread of someone padding about over the bare boards, cautiously, stealthily, as silent as possible, and further, that the sounds had been lately coming distinctly nearer. For the first time in his life he began to feel a little creepy. Then, as though to emphasize this feeling, an odd thing happened. As he left the bedroom, having just packed his white shirts, 
he noticed that the top of the kit bag lopped over toward him with an extraordinary resemblance to a human face. The canvas fell into a fold like a nose and a forehead, and the brass rings for the padlock just filled the position of the eyes. A shadow? Or was it a travel stain? For he could not tell exactly, looked like hair. It gave him rather a turn, for it was so absurdly, so outrageously like the face of John Turk the murderer. He laughed and went into the front room where the light was stronger. That horrid case has got on my mind, he thought. I shall be glad of a change of scene and air. In the sitting room, however, he was not pleased to hear again that the stealthy tread upon the stairs, and to realize that it was much closer than before, as well as unmistakably real. And this time, he got up and went out to see who could be creeping about on the upper staircase at so late an hour. But the sound ceased. There was no one visible on the stairs. He went to the floor below, not without trepidation, and turned on the electric light to make sure that no one was hiding in the empty rooms of the unoccupied suite. There was not a stick of furniture large enough to hide a dog. Then he called over the banisters to Mrs. Monk's, but there was no answer, and his voice echoed down into the dark vault of the house and was lost in the roar of the gale that howled outside. Everyone was in bed and asleep, everyone except himself and the owner of this soft and stealthy tread. My absurd imagination, I suppose, he thought. It must have been the wind after all, although it seemed so very real and close, I thought. He went back to his packing, and it was by this time getting on towards midnight. He drank his coffee up and lit another pipe, the last before turning in. It was difficult to say at what point fear begins, when the causes of that fear are not plainly before the eyes. Impressions gather on the surface of the mind, film by film, as ice gathers upon the surface of still water. But often, so lightly, that they claim no definite recognition from the conscious. Then a point is reached, when the accumulated impressions become a definite emotion, and the mind realizes that something has happened. With something of a start, Johnson suddenly recognized that he felt nervous, oddly nervous. Also, that for some time past, the causes of this feeling had been gathering, slowly in his mind but that he had only just reached the point where he was forced to acknowledge them. It was a singular and curious malaise that had come over him, and he hardly knew what to make of it. He felt as though he were doing something that was strongly objected to by another person. Another person, moreover, who had some right to object. It was a most disturbing and disagreeable feeling, not unlike the persistent promptings of conscience, almost, in fact, as if he were doing something he knew to be wrong. Yet though he searched vigorously and honestly in his mind, he could nowhere lay his finger upon the secret of his growing uneasiness, and it perplexed him. More, it distressed and frightened him. Pure nerves, I suppose, he said aloud with a forced laugh. Mountain air will cure all of that. Ah, he added, still speaking to himself, and that reminds me, my snow glasses. He was standing by the door of the bedroom during this brief soliloquy, and as he passed quickly toward the sitting room to fetch them from the cupboard, he saw out of the corner of his eye the indistinct outline of a figure standing on the stairs a few feet from the top. It was someone in a stooping position, with one hand on the banisters and the face peering upward toward the landing. And at that same moment, he heard a shuffling footstep. The person who had been creeping about below all this time had come up to his own floor. Who in the world could it be? And what in the name of heaven did he want? Johnson caught his breath sharply and stood stock still. Then, after a few seconds' hesitation, 
he found his courage and turned to investigate. The stairs he saw to his utter amazement were empty. There was no one. He felt a series of cold shivers run over him, and something about the muscles of his legs gave a little and grew weak. For the space of several minutes, he peered steadily into the shadows that congregated about the top of the staircase, where he had seen the figure, and then walked fast, almost ran, in fact, into the light of the front room. But hardly had he passed inside the doorway when he heard someone come up the stairs behind him with a quick bound and go swiftly into his bedroom. It was a heavy but at the same time a stealthy footstep, the tread of somebody who did not wish to be seen. And it was at this precise moment that the nervousness he had hitherto experienced leapt the boundary line and entered the state of fear, almost of acute, unreasoning fear. Before it turned into terror, there was a further boundary to cross, and beyond that again lay the region of pure horror. Johnson's position was an unenviable one. By Jove, that was someone on the stairs then, he muttered, his flesh crawling all over. And whoever it was has now gone into my bedroom. His delicate, pale face turned absolutely white, and for some minutes he hardly knew what to think or do. Then he realized intuitively that delay only set a premium upon fear, and he crossed the landing boldly and went straight into the other room, where, a few seconds before, the steps had disappeared. "'Who's there? Is that you, Mrs. Monks?' he called aloud as he went and heard the first half of his words echo down the empty stairs, while the second half fell dead against the curtains in a room that apparently held no other human figure than his own. "'Who's there?' he called again, in a voice unnecessarily loud that just only held firm. "'What do you want here?' The curtains swayed very slightly, and as he saw it, his heart felt as if it almost missed a beat. And yet... He dashed forward and drew them aside with a rush. A window streaming with rain was all that met his gaze. He continued his search, but in vain. The cupboards held nothing but rows of clothes hanging motionless, and under the bed there was no sign of anyone hiding. He stepped backwards into the middle of the room, and as he did so, something all but tripped him up. Turning with a sudden spring of alarm, he saw the kit bag. Odd, he thought. That's not where I left it. A few moments before, it had surely been on his right, between the bed and the bath. He did not remember having moved it. It was very curious. What in the world was the matter with everything? Were all his senses gone queer? A terrific gust of wind tore at the windows, dashing the sleet against the glass with the force of a small gunshot, and then fled away howling dismally over the waste of Bloomsbury roofs. A sudden vision of the channel next day rose in his mind and recalled him sharply to realities. "'There's no one here at any rate, that's quite clear,' he exclaimed aloud. Yet at the time he uttered them, he knew perfectly well that his words were not true, and that he did not believe them himself. He felt exactly as though someone was hiding about close to him, watching all his movements, trying to hinder his packing in some way. "'And two of my senses,' he added, keeping up the pretense, "'have played me the most absurd tricks. "'The steps I heard and the figure I saw were both entirely imaginary.' and he went back to the front room, poked the fire into a blaze, and sat down before it to think. What impressed him more than anything else was the fact that the kit bag was no longer where he had left it, and it had been dragged nearer to the door. What happened afterward that night happened, of course, to a man excited by fear and was perceived by a man that had not the full and proper control, therefore, of his senses. 
Outwardly, Johnson remained calm and master of himself to the end, pretending to the very last that everything he witnessed had a natural explanation or was merely delusions of his tired nerves. But inwardly, in his very heart, he knew all along that someone had been hiding downstairs in the empty suite when he came in, that this person had watched his opportunity and then stealthily made his way up to the bedroom, and that all he saw and heard afterwards from the moving of the kit bag to, well, to the other things the story has to tell, were caused directly by the presence of this invisible person. And it was here, just when he most desired to keep his mind and thoughts controlled, that the vivid pictures received day after day upon the mental plates exposed in the courtroom of the old Bailey came strongly to light and developed themselves in the dark room of his inner vision. Unpleasant, haunting memories have a way of coming to life just when the mind desires them least. In the silent watches of the night, on sleepless pillows, during the lonely hours spent by sick and dying beds. And so now, in the same way, Johnson saw nothing but the dreadful face of John Turk the murderer, lowering at him from every corner of his mental field of vision. The white skin, the evil eyes, the fringe of black hair low over the forehead. All the pictures of those ten days in court crowded back into his mind unbidden and very vivid. This is all rubbish and nerves, he exclaimed at length, springing with sudden energy from his chair. I shall finish my packing and go to bed. I'm overwrought, overtired, no doubt, and at this rate I shall hear steps and things all night. But his face was deadly white all the same. He snatched up his field glasses and walked across to the bedroom, humming a music hall song as he went, a trifle too loud to be natural. And the instant he crossed the threshold and stood within the room, something turned cold about his heart, and he felt that every hair on his head stood up. The kit bag lay close in front of him, several feet nearer to the door than it had been when he left, and just over its crumpled top he saw a head and face slowly sinking down out of sight, as though someone were crouching behind it to hide. And at that same moment, a sound, like a long-drawn sigh, was distinctly audible in the still air about him and the gusts of the storm outside. Johnson had more courage and willpower than the girlish indecision of his face indicated, but at first such a wave of terror came over him that for some seconds he could do nothing but stand and stare. A violent trembling ran down his legs and back, and he was conscious of a foolish, almost hysterical impulse to scream aloud. That sigh seemed in his very ear, and the air still quivered with it. It was an unmistakably human sigh. "'Who's there?' he said at length, finding his voice but thought he meant to speak with loud decision. The tones came out, instead, in a faint whisper, for he had partly lost the control of his tongue and lips. He stepped forward, so that he could see all around and over the kit bag. Of course, there was nothing there. Nothing but the faded carpet and bulging canvas sides. He pulled out his hands and threw open the mouth of the sack where it had fallen over, being only three parts full. And then he saw, for the first time, that round the inside... Some six inches from the top, there ran a broad smear of dull crimson. It was an old and faded bloodstain. He uttered a scream and drew back his hands as if they had been burnt. At the same moment, the kit bag gave a faint but unmistakable lurch forward toward the door. Johnson collapsed backwards, searching with his hands for the support of something solid, and the door, being further behind him than he realized, received his weight just in time to prevent his falling, and shut to with a resounding bang. 
At the same moment, the swinging of his left arm accidentally touched the electric switch and the light in the room went out. It was an awkward and disagreeable predicament, and if Johnson had not been possessed of real pluck, he might have done all manner of foolish things. As it was, however, he pulled himself together and groped furiously for the little brass knob to turn the light on again. But the rapid closing of the door had set the coats hanging on it a-swinging, and his fingers became entangled in a confusion of sleeves and pockets so that it was some moments before he found the switch. And in those few moments of bewilderment and terror, two things happened that sent him beyond recall over the boundary into the region of genuine horror. He distinctly heard the kit bag shuffling heavily across the floor in jerks, and close in front of his face sounded once again the sigh of a human being. In his anguished efforts to find the brass button on the wall, he nearly scraped the nails from his fingers, but even then, in those frenzied moments of alarm, so swift and alert are the impressions of a man keyed up by a vivid emotion, he had time to realize that he dreaded the return of the light, and that it might be better for him to stay hidden in the merciful screen of darkness. It was but the impulse of a moment, however, and before he had time to act upon it, he had yielded automatically to the original desire, and the room was flooded again with light. But the second instinct had been right. It would have been better for him to have stayed in the shelter of the kind darkness. For there, close before him, bending over the half-packed kickbag, clear as life in the merciless glare of the electric light, stood the figure of John Turk the murderer. Not three feet from him the man stood, the fringe of black hair marked plainly against the pallor of the forehead. The whole horrible presentment of the scoundrel as vivid as he had seen him day after day in the old bailey when he stood there in the dark cynical and callous under the very shadow of the gallows in a flash johnson realized what it all meant the dirty and much used bag the smear of crimson within the top the dreadful stretched condition of the bulging sides he remembered how the victim's body had been stuffed into a canvas bag for burial the ghastly dismembered fragments forced with lime into this very bag, and the bag itself produced as evidence. It all came back to him clear as day. Very softly and stealthily, his hand groped behind him for the handle of the door, but before he could actually turn it, the very thing that most of all he dreaded came about, and John Turk lifted his devil's face and looked at him. At the same moment, that heavy sigh passed through the air of the room, formulated somehow into words. It's my bag, and I want it. Johnson just remembered clawing the door open and then falling in a heap upon the floor of the landing as he tried frantically to make his way into the front room. He remained unconscious for a long time, and it was still dark when he opened his eyes and realized that he was laying stiff and bruised on the cold boards. Then the memory of what he had seen rushed back into his mind, and he promptly fainted again. When he woke... The second time, the wind, the wintry dawn, it was just beginning to peep at the windows, painting the stairs a cheerless, dismal gray. And he managed to crawl into the front room and cover himself with an overcoat in the armchair, where at length he fell asleep. A great clamor woke him. He recognized Mrs. Monks's loud voice. What, you ain't been to bed, sir? Are you ill? Or has anything happened? Is there an urgent gentleman to see you? Though it ain't seven o'clock yet. "'Who is it?' he stammered. "'I'm all right, thanks. Fell asleep in my chair, I suppose. "'Someone from Mr. Wilbram's, "'and he says he ought to see you quick before you go abroad. "'And I told him, show him up, please, at once,' said Johnson, "'whose head was whirling and his mind was still full of dreadful visions. 
Mr. Wilbraham's man came in with many apologies and explained briefly and quickly what an absurd mistake had been made and that the wrong kit bag had been sent over the night before. Henry somehow got hold of the one that came over from the courtroom and Mr. Wilbraham only discovered it when he saw his own lying in the room and asked why it not had gone to you, the man said. Oh, said Johnson stupidly. And he must have brought you the one from the murder case instead, sir, I'm afraid. The man continued, without the ghost of an expression on his face. The one John Turk packed the dead body both in. Mr. Wilbraham's awful upset about it, sir, and told me to come over first thing this morning with the right one as you were leaving by boat. He pointed to a clean-looking kit bag on the floor, which he had just brought. And I was to bring the other one back, sir, he added casually. For some minutes, Johnson could not find his voice. At last, he pointed in the direction of the bedroom. Perhaps you would kindly unpack it for me. Just empty the things out on the floor. The man disappeared into the other room and was gone for five minutes. Johnson heard the shifting to and fro of the bag and the rattle of the skates and boots being unpacked. Thank you, sir, the man said, returning with the bag folded over his arm. And can I do anything more to help you, sir? What is it? asked Johnson, seeing that he had still had something he wished to say. The man shuffled and looked mysterious. Beg your pardon, sir, but knowing your interest in the Turk case, I thought you'd maybe like to know what happened. Yes? John Turk killed himself last night with poison immediately on getting his release, and he left a note for Mr. Wilbraham saying he'd been much obliged if they'd have him put away, same as the woman he murdered, in the old kit bag. What time did he do it? asked Johnson. Ten o'clock last night, sir, the warder said. The end. <laughs> I thought it was going to be like the face, like his, like, like it was a like head. a skin bag. Oh, yeah, I thought so and at first, And then too. when, like, when John Turk, like, looked at him, he wasn't going to have a face. He was like, that's my face. <laughs> that <laughs> would have been scary, there. too. Yeah. No, it was the bag he packed a body in. Yeah. Ooh. They had, like, accidentally given him evidence from the court case. <gasps> Wild. Bananas, right? Yeah. Man, they knew how to write back then. I love how they freeze things. Yeah. <laughs> I hope everybody's getting spooked. Oh man! Are you, you ready for like your voices and everything? I know. I I can't. You're help such myself. a good reader. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I can't help myself. I don't have voices in the one I wrote, but I have all the accents in that one. Perfect. It's from reading stories to my kids so much. I know they get mad at me when I don't know like all five hundred Harry Potter voices. Uh, there are so many voices There's in Harry so Potter many. books. Yeah. And they all have to be different. Or yeah. Violet's like, that sounds like Hermione, not Mrs. Weasley. I know. Okay. <laughs> are you guys ready Ready for Leslie's story? I can hear you all responding, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us what, what tale you are going to read for us. Tonight I am reading Smee by A.M. Barrage. said Jackson with a decrepitory smile. I'm sorry. I don't want to upset your game. I shan't be doing that because you'll have plenty without me, but I'm not playing any games of hide-and-seek. It was Christmas Eve and we were a party of 14 with just the proper leavening of youth. We had dined well, it was the season for childish games, and we were all in the mood for playing them. All that is, except Jackson. 
When somebody suggested hide-and-seek, there was rapturous and almost unanimous approval. His was the one descient voice. It was not like Jackson to spoil sport or refuse to do as others wanted. Somebody asked him if he were feeling seedy. No, he answered. I feel perfectly fit, thanks. But, he added with a smile which softened without retracting the flat refusal, I'm not playing hide-and-seek. One of us asked him why not. He hesitated for some seconds before replying. I sometimes go and stay at a house where a girl was killed through playing hide-and-seek in the dark. She didn't know the house very well. There was a servant's staircase with a door to it. When she was pursued, she opened the door and jumped into what she must have thought was one of the rooms, and she broke her neck at the bottom of the stairs. We all looked concerned, and Mrs. Fernley said, How awful! And you were there when it happened? Jackson shook his head very gravely. No, he said, but I was there when something else happened. Something worse. I shouldn't have thought anything could be worse. This was, said Jackson, and shuddered visibly. Or so it seemed to me. I think he wanted to tell the story and was angling for encouragement. A few requests, which may have seemed to him to lack urgency, he affected to ignore and went off at a tangent. I wonder if any of you have played a game called Smee. It's a great improvement on the ordinary game of hide-and-seek. The name derives from the ungrammatical colloquialism, It's Me. You might care to play if you're going to play a game of that sort. Let me tell you the rules. Every player is presented with a sheet of paper. All the sheets are blank, except one, on which is written Smee. Nobody knows who is Smee except Smee himself or herself, as the case may be. The lights are then turned out, and Smee slips from the room and goes off to hide. And after an interval, the other players go off in search, without knowing whom they are actually in search of. One player meeting another challenges the word Smee, and the other player, if not the one concerned, answers Smee. The real Smee makes no answer when challenged, and the second player remains quietly by him. Presently, they will be discovered by a third player, who, having challenged and received no answer, will link up with the first two. This goes on until all the players have formed a chain, and the last to join is marked down for a forfeit. It's a good noisy romping game, and in a big house it often takes a long time to complete the chain. You might care to try it. I'll pay my forfeit and smoke one of Tim's excellent cigars here by the fire until you get tired of it. I remarked that it sounded a good game and asked Jackson if he had played it himself. Yes, he answered. I played it at the house I was telling you about. And she was there, the girl who broke... No, 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 Mrs. Fernley interrupted. He told us he wasn't there when it happened. Jackson considered. I don't know if she was there or not. I'm afraid she was. I know that there were 13 of us, and there ought only to have been 12. And I'll swear that I didn't know her name, or I think I should have gone clean off my head when I heard that whisper in the dark. No, you don't catch me playing that game or any other like it anymore. It spoiled my nerve quite a while, and I can't afford to take long holidays. Besides, it saves a lot of trouble and inconvenience to own up at once to being a coward. Tim Voice 
the best of hosts, smiled around at us, and in that smile there was meaning which is sometimes vulgarly expressed by the slow closing of an eye. There's a story coming, he announced. There's certainly a story of sorts, said Jackson, but whether it's coming or not, he paused and shrugged his shoulders. Well, you're going to pay a forfeit instead of playing? Please, but have a heart and let me down lightly. It's not just a sheer cussedness on my part. Payment in advance, said Tom, ensures honesty and promotes good feeling. You are therefore sentenced to tell the story here and now. And here follows Jackson's story, unrevised by me and passed on without comment to a wider public. Some of you, I know, have run across the Sangstons, Christopher Sangston and his wife, I mean. They're distant connections of mine. At least Violet Sangston is. About eight years ago, they bought a house between the North and South Downs on the Surrey and Sussex border, and five years ago, they invited me to come and spend Christmas with them. It was a fairly old house. I couldn't say exactly what period, and it certainly deserved the epithet rambling. It wasn't a particularly big house, but the original architect, whoever he may have been, had not concerned himself with economizing in space, and at first you could get lost in it quite easily. Well, I went down for that Christmas, assured by Violet's letter that I knew most of my fellow guests, and that the two or three who might be strangers to me were all lambs. Unfortunately, I'm one of the world's workers, and couldn't get away until Christmas Eve, although the other members of the party had assembled on the preceding day. Even then, I had to cut it rather fine to be there for dinner on my first night. They were all dressing when I arrived, and I had to go straight to my room and waste no time. I may have kept dinner waiting a bit, for I was the last down, and it was announced within a minute of my entering the drawing room. There was just time to say hello to everybody I knew, to be briefly introduced to the two or three I didn't know, and then I had to give my arm to Mrs. Gorman. I mention this as the reason why I didn't catch the name of a tall, dark, and handsome girl I hadn't met before. Everything was rather hurried, and I am always bad at catching people's names. She looked cold and clever and rather forbidding, the sort of girl who gives the impression of knowing all about men, and the more she knows of them, the less she likes of them. I felt that I wasn't going to hit it off with this particular lamb of violets, but she looked interesting all the same and I wondered who she was. I didn't ask because I was pretty sure of hearing somebody address her by name before long. Unluckily, though, I was a long way off from her at the table, and as Mrs. Gorman was at the top of her form that night, I soon forgot to worry about who she might be. Mrs. Gorman is one of the most amusing women I know, an outrageous but quite innocent flirt with a very sprightly wit which isn't always unkind. She can think half a dozen moves ahead in conversation, just as an expert can in a game of chess. We were soon sparring, or rather I was covering against the ropes, and I quite forgot to ask her in an undertone the name of the cold, proud beauty. The lady on the other side of me was a stranger, or had been until a few minutes since, and I didn't think of seeking information in that quarter. There was around a dozen of us, including the Sangstons themselves, and we were all young or trying to be. The Sangstons themselves were the oldest members of the party, and their son Reggie, in his last year at Marlborough, must have been the youngest. When there was talk of playing games after dinner, it was he who suggested Smee. 
He told us how to play it just as I've described to you. His father chipped in as soon as we all understood what was going to be required of us. If there are any games of that sort going on in this house, he said, for goodness sake, be careful of the back stairs on the first floor landing. There's a door to them, and I've often meant to take it down. In the dark, anybody who doesn't know the house very well might think that they're walking into a room. A girl actually did break her neck on those stairs about ten years ago when the Anstys lived there. I asked how it happened. Uh, oh, said Singston. There was a party here on Christmas time, and they were playing hide-and-seek, and as you propose doing, this girl was one of the hiders. She heard somebody coming, ran along the passage to get away, and opened the door at what she thought was a bedroom, evidently with the intention of hiding behind it while her pursuer went past. Unfortunately, it was the door leading to the back stairs, and that staircase is as straight and almost as steep as the shaft of a pit. She was dead when they picked her up. We all promised for our own sakes to be careful. Mrs. Gorman said that she was sure nothing could happen to her since she was insured by three different firms, and her next of kin was a brother whose consistent ill of luck was a byword in the family. You see, none of us had known the unfortunate girl, and as the tragedy was ten years old, there was no need to pull long faces about it. Well, we started the game almost immediately after dinner. The men allowed themselves only five minutes before joining the ladies, and then young Reggie Singston went around and assured himself that the lights were all out all over the house except in the servants' quarters and in the drawing room where we were assembled. We then got busy with twelve sheets of paper which he twisted into pellets and shook up between his hands before passing them around. Eleven of them were blank, and Smee was written on the twelfth. The person drawing the latter was the one who had to hide. I looked and saw that mine was blank. A moment later, out went the electric lights, and in the darkness I heard somebody get up and creep to the door. After a minute or so, somebody gave a signal, and we made a rush for the door. I, for one, hadn't the least idea which of the party was Smee. For five or ten minutes, we were all rushing around and down passages and in and out of room, challenging one another and answering, Smee, Smee! After a bit of the alarmists and excursions, I died down, and I guess that Smee was found. Eventually, I found a chain of people all sitting still and holding their breath on some narrow stairs leading up to a row of attics. I hastily joined in. Having challenged and been answered with silence, and pres presently two more stragglers arrived, each racing the other to avoid being last, Sangston was one of them, indeed it was he who was marked down for a forfeit, and after a little while he remarked in an undertone, I think we're all here now, aren't we? He struck a match, looked up the shaft of the staircase, and began to count. It wasn't hard, although we just about filled the staircase, for we were sitting each a step or two above the next, and our heads were visible. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, he concluded, and then laughed. Dash, dash it all. That's one too many. The match had burned out, and he struck another and began to count. He got as far as twelve and then uttered an exclamation. There are thirteen people here, he exclaimed. I haven't counted myself yet. Oh, nonsense, I laughed. You probably began with yourself, and now you want to count yourself twice. Out came his son's electric torch. 
giving a brighter and steadier light, and we all began to count. Of course, we numbered twelve. Sangston laughed. Well, he said, I could have sworn I counted thirteen twice. From halfway up the stairs came Violet Sangston's voice with a little nervous twill in it. I thought there was somebody sitting two steps above me. Have you moved up, Captain Ransom? Ransom said that he hadn't. He also said that he thought there was somebody sitting between Violet and himself. Just for a moment, there was an uncomfortable something in the air. A little cold ripple which touched us all. For that little moment, it seemed to all of us, I think, that something odd and unpleasant had happened and was liable to happen again. Then we laughed at ourselves and at one another and were comfortable once more. There were only twelve of us, and there could only have been twelve of us, and there was no argument about it. Still, laughing, we trooped back to the drawing room to begin again. This time, I was Smee, and Violet Sangston brand me to the earth while I was still looking for a hiding place. That round didn't last long, and we were a chain of twelve within two or three minutes. Afterwards, there was a short interval. Violet wanted a wrap fetched for her, and her husband went up to get it from her room. He was no sooner gone than Reggie pulled me by the sleeve. I saw that he was looking pale and sick. Quick, he whispered, while father's out of the way. Take me into the smoke room and give me a brandy or a whiskey or something. Outside the room, I asked him what was the matter, but he didn't answer at first, and I thought it better to dose him first and ask questions afterwards. Soon, I mixed him a pretty dark-complexioned brandy and soda, which he drank at a gulp and then began to puff as if he had been running. "'I've had a rather turn,' he said with me in a sheepish grin. "'What's the matter?' "'I don't know. You were Smee just now, weren't you? Well, of course, I didn't know who Smee was, and while Mother and the others ran into the West Wing and found you, I turned east.' There's a deep closed cupboard in my bedroom. I'd marked it down as a good place to hide when it was my turn, and I had an idea that Smee might be there. I opened the door in the dark, felt around, and touched somebody's hand. Smee, I whispered. Not getting an answer, I thought, I found Smee. Well, I don't know how it was, but an odd, creepy feeling came over me. I can't describe it, but I felt that something was wrong. So I turned on my electric torch, and there was nobody there. Now I swear I touched a hand, and I was filling up the doorway of the cupboard at the time, so nobody could get out and pass me. He puffed again. What do you make of it? he asked. You imagine that you had touched a hand, I answered naturally enough. He uttered a short laugh. Of course, I knew you were going to say that, he said. I must have imagined it, mustn't I? He paused and swallowed. I mean... It couldn't have been anything else but imagination, could it? I assured him that it couldn't, meaning what I said, and he accepted this, but rather with the philosophy of one who knows he is right but doesn't expect to be believed. We returned together to the drawing room, where, by that time, they were all waiting for us and ready to start again. It may have been my imagination, although I'm almost sure it wasn't, but it seemed to me that all enthusiasm for the game had suddenly melted like a white frost in strong sunlight. If anybody had suggested another game, I'm sure we should all have been grateful and abandoned Smee. Only nobody did. Nobody seemed to like it. I, for one, and I can speak for some of the others too, was oppressed with the feeling that there was something wrong. 
I couldn't have said what I thought was wrong. Indeed, I didn't think about it at all. But somehow, all the sparkle had gone out of the fun, and hovering over my mind like a shadow was warning of some sixth sense which told me that there was an influence in the house which was neither sane, sound, nor healthy. Why did I feel like that? Because Sangston had counted thirteen of us instead of twelve, and his son had thought he had touched somebody in an empty cupboard? No, there was more in it than just that. One would have laughed at such things in the ordinary way, and it was just that feeling of something being wrong which stopped me from laughing. Well, we started again, and when we went in pursuit of the unknown Smee, we were as noisy as ever, but it seemed to me the most of us were acting. Frankly, for no reason other than the one I've given you, we'd stopped enjoying the game. I had an instinct to hunt with the main pact, but after a few minutes, during which no Smee had been found, my instinct to play winning games and be first if possible sent me searching on my own account, and on the first floor of the west wing following the wall, which was actually the shell of the house, I blundered against a pair of human knees. I put out my hand and touched a soft, heavy curtain. Then I knew where I was. There was tall, deeply recessed windows with seats along the landing and curtains over the recess to the ground. Somebody was sitting in the corner of this window seat behind the curtain. Aha, I had caught Smee. So I drew the curtain aside, stepped in, and touched the bare arm of a woman. It was dark night outside, and moreover, the window was not only curtained, but a blind hung down to where the bottom panes joined up with the frame. Between the curtain and the window, it was dark as the plague of Egypt. I could not have seen my hand held six inches before my face, much less the woman sitting in the corner. Smee, I whispered. I had no answer. Smee, when challenged, does not answer. So I sat beside her, first in the field to await the others. Then, having settled myself, I leaned over to her and whispered, Who is it? What's your name, Smee? And out of the darkness besides me, the whisper came back, Brenda Ford. I didn't know the name, but because I didn't know it, I guessed at once who she was. The tall, pale, dark girl was the only person in the house I didn't know by name. Ergo, my companion was the tall, pale, dark girl. It seemed rather intriguing to be there with her, shut in between a heavy curtain and a window, and I rather wondered whether she was enjoying the game we were all playing. Somehow, she hadn't seemed to me to be one of the romping sort. I muttered one or two commonplace questions to her and had no answer. Smee is a game of silence. Smee and the person or persons who have found Smee are supposed to keep quiet to make it hard for the others. But there was nobody else about, and it occurred to me that she was playing the game a little too much to the letter. I spoke again and got no answer, and then I began to be annoyed. She was of that cold, superior type which affects to despise men. She didn't like me, and she was sheltering behind the rules of the game for children to be discourteous. Well, if she didn't like sitting there with me, I certainly didn't want to be sitting there with her. I half turned from her and began to hope that we should be discovered without much more delay. Having discovered that I didn't like being there alone with her, it was queer how soon I found myself hating it, and that for a reason very different from the one which had first whetted my annoyances. 
The girl I had met for the first time before dinner and seen diagonally across the table had a sort of cold charm about her which had attracted while it had half angered me. For the girl who was with me, imprisoned in the opaque darkness between the curtain and the window, I felt no attraction at all. It was so very much the reverse that I should have wondered at myself if, after the first shock of the discovery that she had suddenly become repellent to me, I had had room in my mind for anything besides the consciousness that her close presence was an increasing horror to me. It came upon me just as quickly as I've uttered the words. My flesh suddenly shrank from her as you see a strip of gelatin shrink and wither before the heat of a fire. That feeling of something being wrong had come back to me, but multiplied to an extent which turned foreboding into an actual terror. I firmly believe that I should have got up and run if I had not felt that at my first movement she would have divined my intention and compelled me to stay, but some means of which I could not bear to think. The memory of having touched her bare arm made me wince and drawl in my lips, I prayed that somebody else would come along soon. My prayer was answered. The light footsteps sounded on the landing. Somebody on the other side of the curtain brushed against my knees. The curtain was drawn aside, and a woman's hand, fumbling in the darkness, presently rested on my shoulder. Smee, whispered a voice, which I instantly recognized as Mrs. Gorman's. Of course, she received no answer. She came and settled down beside me with a rustle, and I can't describe the sense of relief she brought me. It's Tony, isn't it? She whispered. Yes, I whispered back. You're not Smee, are you? No, she's on my other side. She reached a hand across me, and I heard one of the nails scratch the surface of a woman's silk gown. Hello, Smee. How are you? Who are you? Oh, is it against the rules to talk? Never mind, Tony. We'll break the rules. Do you know, Tony, this game is beginning to irk me a little. I hope they're not going to run it into death by playing it all evening. I'd like to play some game where we can all be together in the same room with a nice bright fire. Same here, I agreed fervently. Can you suggest something when we go down? There's something rather uncanny in this particular amusement. I can't quite shed the delusion that there's somebody in this game who ought to be in it at all. That was just how I had been feeling, but I didn't say so. But for my part, the worst of my qualms were now gone. The arrival of Mrs. Gorman dissipated them. We sat on talking, wondering from time to time when the rest of the party would arrive. I don't know how long elapsed before we heard a clatter of feet on the landing and young Reggie's voice shouting, Hello? Hello? Hello there? Anybody there? Yes, I answered. Mrs. Gorman with you? Yes. Well, you're a nice pair. You've both forfeited. We've all been waiting for you for hours. Why? You haven't found Smee yet, I objected. You haven't, you mean. I happen to have been Smee myself. But Smee's here with us, I cried. Yes, said Mrs. Gorman. The curtain was stripped aside, and in a moment we were blinking into the eyes of Reggie's electric torch. I looked at Mrs. Gorman and then on my other side. Between me and the wall, there was an empty space on the window seat. I stood up at once and wished I had it, for I found myself sick and dizzy. There was somebody there, I maintained, because I touched her. So did I, said Mrs. Gorman in a voice which had lost its steadiness 
and I don't see how she could have gotten up and gone without our knowing it. Reggie uttered a queer, shaken laugh. He, too, had an unpleasant experience that evening. Somebody's been playing the goat, he remarked, coming down. We were not very popular when we arrived in the drawing room. Reggie rather tactlessly gave it out that he had found us sitting on a window seat behind the curtain. I taxed the tall, dark girl with having pretended to be Smee and afterwards slipping away. She denied it, after which we settled down and played other games. Smee was done with for the evening, and I, for one, was glad with it. Some long while later, during an interval, Sangston told me if I wanted a drink to go into the smoke room and help myself. I went, and he presently followed me. I could see that he was rather peeved with me, and the reason came out during the following minute or two. It seemed that, in his opinion, if I must sit out and flirt with Mrs. Gorman in circumstances which he would have found considered highly compromising in his young days, I needn't do it during a round game and keep everybody waiting for us. But there was somebody else there, I protested, somebody pretending to be Smee. I believe it was the tall, dark girl, Miss Ford. Although she denied it, she even whispered her name to me. Sangston stared at me and nearly dropped his glass. Miss who? he shouted. Brenda Ford. She told me her name was. Sangston put down his glass and laid a hand on my shoulder. Look here, old man, he said. I don't mind a joke, but don't let it go too far. We don't want all the women in the house getting hysterical. Brenda Ford is the name of the girl who broke her neck on the stairs playing hide-and-seek here ten years ago. don't want on the women to get hysterical. <laughs> we don't. This guy was such a dick. I know. He's like, I'm so angry she's not talking to me. <laughs> I don't even want to be in her space anymore. <laughs> if you were going to flirt with Mrs. Gorman or whatever her name was, you should have just yeah. done it somewhere more discreet. Yeah. Do it on your own time, not don't when we're playing Smee. <laughs> First of all, why don't grown-ups play hide-and-seek anymore? That sounds fun. I know. I had again, some, hide and seek with all the lights off. We've talked about this. We would we would not We'd be okay know. with that. No. We'd both be like... All the electric lights off. <laughs> that was like a show-offy think, thing back yeah. then. Not everybody had electric lights. And you had to differentiate because it could have been gas lights. That would have been more difficult. That's a good mm. one. <laughs> Are you all right? Yeah. That's a lot of reading, man. <laughs> I, I, I know. <laughs> um... So I wrote one. Yay. Yeah, I tried to kind of make it in the style of the other ones we had read. Not, It's not precisely like the same kind of like really acrobatic wording yeah. <laughs> that they use because, you know, you and I don't speak like that any longer, yes. but I tried to keep it like thematically similar enough. Great. Yeah, so I don't know that I've ever written a full-length ghost story before. So I hope it's good. I hope you guys like it. And um, if not, sorry, I'll never do it again. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to love it. Just kidding. I'm going to do it again. It's our podcast. We'll do what we like. <laughs> I'm going to do what I want. It's all ghost stories from now on. <laughs> Just kidding, you guys. Don't worry. I'll still talk about horrible murders, which is a relief to everyone. <laughs> it's so much better. Oh, good. That makes me happy. Okay, so the title of my story is Mrs. Grove. Christmas had always been my favorite time of year. 
While some favor the warm weather and relaxed pace of the summertime, I much prefer a nip in the air and a spring in my step. I awoke this Christmas Eve to the fortunate news that the day had been christened with a fresh snowfall. It was as though Mother Nature herself decided to add the finishing touches to the evergreens that lined the road leading to my little cottage. I will admit that it was more than kind of Mr. Grove to provide me with my own space to retire to after a day spent with the children. He and his wife hired me on as a governess three years ago, and since then the Groves have become something of a second family. Sadly, though, Mrs. Grove passed on a year ago. She took ill in September, and by Christmas she was gone. Christmas Day, in fact. Poor thing wasted away, and no matter how hard we tried, no one could seem to help her. Doctors were befuddled. They said a terrible fever had taken hold and refused to release her from its clutches. They nearly bled her dry for weeks with no results, before telling us to keep her comfortable and hope for the best. I tended to her many nights myself, fetching sweet tea and biscuits as they were the only things she could seem to hold down. But even those seemed to lose their appeal in the end. It was a ghastly way to leave this world. By the end, she could neither see nor move her legs. Seizures racked her body, and the children had to be kept away. I would not wish such an exit on my worst enemy, and visions of it haunt me still. Some nights I lie awake in my bed, and I swear I can hear her whispering, Grace, Grace, which is my name. There is always something else that follows, but I cannot make it out. While it was certainly a trying time, I was glad to be of service. Mr. Grove was so appreciative of my efforts that after Mrs. Grove's passing, he took me on full time and gave me this little cottage. I know that nothing can make up for the loss of a wife and mother, but I try my best to keep their spirits up and fill their days with happiness just as she would have wanted. But enough of that unpleasantness. It is Christmas, and we should be making merry. My life may not be exactly as I dreamed right now, but I feel certain that I am on the right path. My mother, however, has no trouble reminding me that I remain 25 and unmarried. But this no longer troubles me. I confess that I have always wanted a family of my own, but I have found ways to fill the void. In fact, I will share with you a little something if you can keep a secret. Mr. Grove has been inviting me to remain in his sitting room after dinner for tea. We have become quite close these last few months. And though he has not made any romantic overtures, I would not be surprised if they were peeking around the corner. He has requested a private lunch with me today, so perhaps my mother will have her wishes granted sooner than she thinks. I awoke early this morning to run my final errands, off to the shops to pick up the lace fan I had ordered for my mother, and the spyglass my youngest niece had coveted for the better part of a year. I don't have much, but given the trials of the past year, Mr. Grove saw it fit to give me a raise, and so I can afford certain luxuries my family has long done without. It is my great pleasure to treat them. After picking up my parcels, I returned home in high spirits and wrapped my packages in crisp brown paper, each tied with a length of bright red ribbon I had found among Mrs. Grove's things. Mr. Grove said that I should feel free to use it as he couldn't bring himself to do so and knew she would not want it go to waste. After finishing my tasks for the morning, I changed into my emerald green dress and made my way to the main house for lunch. Mr. Grove and I had a lovely afternoon and when the meal came to a close, he presented me with a gift. It was a necklace that had been in his family for many years. A thin golden chain held a charm in the shape of a songbird. If his intentions weren't clear before this moment, I certainly saw them now. He placed his hand on mine and told me that he hoped I might be taking on a new role in his family during the new year.
I left feeling quite flushed, and the red of my cheeks against the green of my skirts made for a most festive appearance indeed. I am lucky enough to have a little time off for the holiday, and as my family is a traditional one, we will gather tonight to celebrate. Mother will make roast goose, Christmas pudding, and punch with spirits. Mother says she has invited her new neighbor this year, a woman called Margaret, who claims to be able to speak with ghosts. A spiritualist, I believe, is what she calls herself. I anticipate our ghost story hour to be the finest in the village this year, and that our merriment may go on late into the evening. When I told Mr. Grove of my plans, he insisted that their driver bring me around in a carriage so that I wouldn't have to worry about making it home in the snow. So it appears that I will be making quite an entrance this year. Though I am sad to leave my second family, I look forward to tomorrow morning when I will visit with the children to see what St. Nicholas has brought them. I confess, I myself have some small tokens and sweets to give them even though Mr. Grove says I needn't do so. I just can't help myself. I love seeing their happy little faces. I have always pretended in my secret thoughts that Penelope and Arthur were mine. I hold such affection for them. As the sun began to creep ever closer to the horizon, I heard the carriage clopping merrily toward my cottage, its lanterns casting a warm glow into the chilly air. The driver hopped down from his seat to help me with my parcels and then opened the door so that I might climb into the cozy little chamber. A red plaid blanket sat on the seat and I drew it over my legs. This was shaping up to be the finest Christmas I ever had. My arrival at the party was met with much enthusiasm, and I made certain to remove my scarf as soon as I crossed the house's threshold, proudly displaying my little golden bird for all to see. Mother gushed, of course, loudly proclaiming that next year we would be needing three more place settings at the dinner table. After saying my hellos to my siblings, aunts, uncles, and cousins, my mother called me over to meet her neighbor, Margaret. She was a strange woman, tall and formidable. Her long, thick hair hung in braids that brushed her waist, though she was far too old for such a style. A lace shawl was draped over her broad shoulders, and she wore an expression of concern. "'Margaret, this is my daughter Grace,' my mother said jovially. "'Grace, this is my new neighbor Margaret.' "'Pleased to make your acquaintance, Margaret,' I said. "'Likewise,' Margaret said coolly. But before she could further the conversation, my mother was called into the kitchen by one of my aunts who had burned the gingerbread and was therefore inconsolable. "'Will you excuse me, please?' my mother said to Margaret, and I began to follow her when I felt Margaret's hand land firmly on my shoulder. I turned around and met her eyes. "'You,' Margaret said darkly. "'I see you. The real you. "'You wear another woman's tragedy like a new fur cape.' Be careful from whence you draw your pride. What? I stammered, taken aback. I was not used to being addressed in such a way, but before I could take issue with her statement, Margaret had gone. The rest of the evening passed pleasantly. The meal was delicious, burned gingerbread and all, and my family loved their gifts. In years past, it had been my brothers and their wives who were the stars of the show, but this year, it was me. After years of being poor Grace the lonely spinster... I was finally coming into my own. The only thing marring this otherwise perfect evening was Margaret. I couldn't shake what she had said to me earlier. What did she mean, wearing another woman's tragedy? Mrs. Grove had gotten ill, everyone knew that. There was nothing that I could have done. I wasn't wearing her tragedy, I was saving her family. Even in life, Mrs. Grove wasn't what her lovely family needed. She was a dour woman, never showing her little ones a moment of affection. 
Her husband languished by himself for hours while she chatted with her gossipy friends and shot disapproving glances at anyone less well-off than she. I love the Groves, and if anything, I'm giving them the life they always deserved. After dessert had been cleaned up, the time had come for ghost stories, and Mother turned to the ace up her sleeve. Margaret, she said triumphantly, why don't you lead the night's fearsome festivities? I've been told you can communicate with the other side. There was a silence before Margaret responded. All right, let us have a seance. Instead of sitting cozily fireside as usual, Margaret has us all sit around the table, purposefully plunking herself right down next to me. While everyone was getting situated, she looked at me coolly and said, That necklace, it's lovely. Thank you, I replied. It was a gift from my employer, Mr. Grove. At the mention of this, my mother perked up. Hopefully he'll be more than just your employer before long, she said, and my family smiled hopefully, giggling in response. Oh, I know the Groves, Margaret went on. If I'm not mistaken, that necklace belonged to the first Mrs. Grove. First, my mother replied, oh, surely you mean the only former Mrs. Grove. We were all so sad to hear of her passing. Yes, said Margaret, tragic. But that isn't the Mrs. Grove to whom I am referring, though she may have worn that necklace as well. It's a family heirloom. Isn't that right, Grace? I nodded. Margaret went on. I'm speaking of Amelia, though, his first wife, who wore that necklace nearly every day. She met a tragic end as well. Grace, I believe she was a governess at the boarding school your mother told me you attended. You must have known her, right? Hmm? I managed to mutter, wondering how on earth she knew. I hadn't told my mother that Mr. Grove had lost two wives. I shouldn't like her to believe him to be cursed. And here is this woman ruining everything when I am so close to everything I ever wanted. Amelia, Margaret repeated. Surely you knew her. She was a beautiful woman, fair, with kind eyes and a soft voice. She died tragically, wasting away before her family's very eyes. How awful, I exclaimed in mock surprise. And, Margaret pressed on, how very like the most recent late Mrs. Grove, no? That poor man, Mother said, so much tragedy in his short life. Why, it's a good thing you came along when you did, Grace. Yes, said Margaret, a good thing. The room seemed to grow hotter as we sat there, and I tugged at the collar of my dress. Let us continue, Margaret said in an official voice, and she instructed us to all hold hands and close our eyes. First, she began with a prayer of protection to keep us safe from the spirits who wandered closest during the course of the evening. Margaret went silent and emerged in a trance-like state. The family asked a series of questions, and Margaret answered in a vague and monotone voice. It was all a bit hokey and monotonous until Margaret announced that she felt a presence and requested that if any spirits were with us in the room, they make their presence known by knocking three times. The family tittered and shifted in their seats. Margaret remained still. We sat there in silence for an uncomfortably long time before my brother started to stir. Well, Margaret, this has been a delight, but I think it's time that we all pack it in. The family agreed and began to filter out of the room, but Margaret remained glued to her seat. I began to get up when I noticed Margaret's hand had firmly placed onto my leg. I tried to move but found myself stuck in place, watching in silence as the room emptied out, leaving Margaret and I alone. Slowly she turned her head to me, 
her eyes now milky white, her jaw slack. From her open and unmoving mouth crept a high and thin whisper. I know your secrets, Grace. I know everything. Panic rose high in my throat, and I feared my heart would burst from my chest, but I still couldn't move. Tell them, Grace. Tell them what you did. Secrets can kill Grace. But then again, you already knew that. No, I screamed. The panic mounted in my chest like a swarm of moths near a candle. You have no idea what you're talking about. I shouted that into the house that somehow seemed empty, finally breaking my temporary paralysis and running out into the glittering moonlight. I did not pause to find my family. I did not pause to say goodbye. I didn't even gather my things or put on my cape. I simply ran into the carriage and told the driver, Go! Now! With the crack of the whip, we were off into the thick blanket of newly fallen snow. Faster! I yelled with wild panic, mounting, looking behind us out the window every other breath. The driver said nothing, just cracked the whip and moved onward. I know what you did, Grace, the high, thin whisper said again, hanging in the air of the carriage, coming from nowhere and everywhere all at once. I know your secrets. No, you don't, I screamed. Faster, I sobbed at the driver, and now the speed with which we moved made the carriage unsteady. Yes, I do, Grace, it whispered. I know everything. Say it, Grace. Say what you did. No, 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 I cried. How could it know? How could anyone? I had been so careful and buried it so deep that I thought it had disappeared. Suddenly the carriage jumped with a loud thud. We had hit a rock and the wheels splintered off its lodging. The carriage pitched sideways as the horse whinnied and the driver screamed. We careened into the woods, wildly slamming into trees. Say it, Grace. Say what you did, echoed the voice as everything went black. Suddenly, in the stillness, it all came flooding back. I couldn't stop it now. I saw kind and beautiful Amelia walking through the classroom door, her golden curls falling over her shoulders as she sat beside me on a bench. I'm sorry, Grace, but I have to go, she said softly. I'm a married woman, and Mr. Grove says I no longer need to work. I am the lady of the house now, and soon, with any luck, there will be children. With this, her face let a smile whisper in. But we can write to each other, and we'll visit each year at Christmas. You're special, Grace. Remember that. Amelia, I said quietly, since it's Christmas... I've brought some biscuits and sweet tea. Will you have some with me before you go, please? Of course, Grace, she said sweetly. Thank you, that would be lovely. I watched as she drained the cup of sticky sweet liquid and helped herself to three of the biscuits, all the while knowing that within an hour, she would be dead. As a child, my family lived in a home that was prone to housing rats. Arsenic works fast if you measure it properly, my mother would tell me while measuring out lethal doses to bait the dreaded vermin. And be sure to mix it with sugar, she'd say. There isn't a creature alive that'll say no to something sweet. And she was right. There wasn't. After she left, I cried because of what I had done. I genuinely liked Amelia. She was lovely and kind, but she wasn't what Mr. Grove needed. I liked Amelia, but I loved Mr. Grove. I had watched him for years, watched him tend his garden, walk his hunting dogs, smoke cigars with his friends. He lived close to my parents, and I knew in my heart that the rest of my life belonged to him. I felt 
locked in my body, watching the events of my past unfold behind my eyelids like a sickening night at the theater, where the audience and the creator were one and the same and the only person in the room. After Amelia, he was so heartsick that Mr. Grove married again quickly, too quickly. I hadn't even had a chance. This time, he married a much less beautiful and intelligent woman, and the pair quickly had children. I studied and trained to become a governess, just like Amelia had. I was everything he needed, and when they began to search for a private governess, I knew this was my inn. The second Mrs. Grove had to be slower. Every day, a little more poison the arsenic adding up in her bloodstream as her children clung to my skirts. I was almost there. I had been so patient, so careful. I told myself I was only correcting a wrong that fate had made. And after she died, I had been so patient. I took my time. But now... Hot tears slid down my cheeks as I tried to open my swollen eyes. That's right, Grace, the voice said. Remember... As I finally got my eyes to open, I saw that I was alone in the woods on the bank of a frozen pond, a pond where I had taken the children skating just days before. Don't wander out on thin ice, I warned. But hadn't I done just that? The driver must have taken the horse to go for help. I staggered to my feet, feeling my useless and broken right leg give way. My eyes scanned the woods, hoping someone had heard the crash and came looking for survivors. In the distance, I saw someone walking toward me slowly and called out in a rasp, Hello! Help! The figure kept walking silently forward with unnatural fluidity, almost as if it were gliding. As it got closer, I saw underneath its crimson hood cascading golden curls. Amelia, I said in disbelief. That's right, Grace, the figure emitted a whisper in response. A whisper I had heard before. The whisper that had echoed in my head the whisper that poured from Margaret's gaping jaw. It was her, and she'd come for revenge. You took something from me, Grace, she whispered. No, I have to take something from you. She pulled the golden bird from my neck and threw it into the snow. You stole my life, Grace, she said, her voice growing, and I wasn't alone. With that, she shoved me hard out onto the patchy ice of the pond, and I slammed into something. Staggering, I turned around and found myself face to face with the other Mrs. Grove. Time and tragedy had stolen most of the words from her throat. Even in death, Grace, Grace, was all she could whisper. It was the whisper from my dreams. The whisper that haunted me in the night. The exact whisper that escaped her lips as I watched her take her last breath. Her apparition stomped a boot onto the thinning ice, which was all it took to make it give way. I plunged into the icy water, seeing only the two Mrs. Groves as I went down. As the sun rose on Christmas morning, the pond had frozen back over, and enough snow had continued to fall to hide the evidence of the struggle that had gone on the night before. The light began to dance off the snow, and a beautiful young girl came walking down the path, shiny new ice skates slung over her shoulder. She saw something at her feet glinting in the snow. It was a tiny, delicate, golden bird. She picked it up and marveled at how lovely it was. The delicate chain hung between her thin fingers, and she fastened it around her neck, unable to believe her luck. The pond was covered in a thick layer of snow, and so she thought she might try skating another time. Then she turned around and headed back towards home. All the while, three pairs of footsteps were following close behind. Measure it properly, said a whisper from the trees, and the girl took off running, never looking back. The End
ghosts. <laughs> yeah. That was good. Thanks. That was good. I expected nothing less. Oh, well, thank you. It wasn't like a super scary one. Mm-hmm. Maybe was, next time it'll be scarier. It was intriguing. It was indeed. What's going to happen to that little girl? I don't know. <laughs> They're gonna, those three ghosts are going to kill her. They're That's what's going to happen. They're just going to keep killing them. Yeah. Now the bird is cursed. Wild. Mm-hmm. Now I want a bird necklace. I do, too. I was like, that sounds pretty. Man. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So those were our ghost stories, you guys. I hope you enjoyed them. Play them on Christmas Eve if you so choose or so celebrate. Yeah. Or if you don't and you just want something to do that night, that's good. (laughs) Hang with us. (laughs) Yeah, man. You can't Well, I guess they would have listened to this already. I guess. Maybe they'll play it again. Okay. For their friends. Virtually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do we have anything else to say? Or we have to toast. We do have to toast. I would say this time we will toast to all of our fiends who have been so good to us this year and this holiday season. I hope you guys have a wonderful and safe holiday or have had that no matter what you celebrate. And um, yeah, we look forward to many more cool things. Yay. So cheers. Cheers. Oh, do we have any... Patrons that we have to cheers to, or are we good? Oh, yes, we do. We do. Okay. So we have another and clink. Yeah. Sarah McDevitt. Oh, yes. Who also won our giveaway. Yay. Way to go, Sarah. So cheers to you. Uh, thank you, Sarah. I hope you enjoy all the fun patron things you get. Our 30 minute horror movie will be coming out in this next week. And this time we're doing The Ginger Dead Man. Oh, my. Yeah, it's very silly. Gary Busey's in it. Yes. Who knew? It's a good it's a good movie. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of movie. And if we were to be confronted with our gravest mistakes on a dark and spooky Christmas Eve, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. <laughs>